0: now let us give ourselves to the worship of our God, taking your Trinity hymn book and turning to number 12, number 12 in the Trinity, to him that comes from the 135th Psalm, which is where we are. And so let us stand together and sing together, exalt the Lord,
1: his praise proclaim. Number 12.
0: would you ask God's blessing on our time?
1: Turn to that Psalm 135. As you turn there, just uh, word if you, you like to read ahead in the Psalms. Um, notice when you read Psalm 136 how parallel how it parallels 135. It's almost as if uh, 135 is a instruction course for the singing of 136. And so, uh, just a little forward look there for you. You may have noticed uh, two main things that the psalmist uh, mentions about God. First of all, praising Him because He is good. And secondly, because He is great. Those are two uh, themes that... um, flow through this psalm. The first one, that he is good, it reminds me of how important it is that we pay much close attention to what words mean. Our Lord Jesus was very concerned about this when the, uh, a certain ruler came running to him and called him, good master, now, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. And his reply to him was, why do you call me good? Think about it. Why did you call me good? And I wonder if Jesus had Psalm 135 in mind. Because he says, there is none good save one. That is God. So there are words that we want to use carefully. We've we've lost the meaning of of several words. Love and awesome come to mind. That we've uh, watered down so that they don't mean what they should. And, and good is another one. And another word uh, to look at here in, in this psalm besides good is uh, the deep places of verse 6. When he describes where God does whatever he pleases, he lists heaven, earth, seas, and the deeps. If you have the NAS, they actually add ocean depths, but the word itself just means uh, a deep place. The Greek word uh and the Septuagint is the abyss, and which is interestingly uh, the same word, the Greek word for the, the bottomless pit. In Genesis 1 verse 2, there's darkness on the face of the deep. That's our word. And there are the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep uh, in Noah's day. That Those do uh, include the ocean depths. And in Job uh, 38, 16, when God is uh, chiding Job a little bit about what he knows, where he's been, he, he points out to him that he walks. Have you walked in those deep places? I walked there, in other words. So God walks there. Demons are afraid to go there. Uh, when the Lord casts them out of the swine, they begged him not to send them out beg him not to send them out in the deep. It's where God's judgments are. Verse uh, Chapter 36, a long time ago, and verse 6, deep is a metaphor for God's judgments. God is there in those deep places. When Jethro came to Moses after God brought them out of Egypt, he speaks of how God got the victory over the idols of Egypt. And that's very much what this psalm is about. And Jethro says, now I know. And he knows because he's seen it. He's heard the testimony of of Moses. And he sees all these people escaped from uh, bondage. And he says, now I know. Yahweh is greater than all gods. And that's what we have here in this psalm. Because in the thing in which they dealt proudly, he was Above them. God is great. And it's not just in verse 6 that he's present everywhere. Not just omnipresent. But he's doing whatever he pleases in all these places. And that's, uh, you know, omnipotent. You know, he's all powerful. But I wish I had a word to put those together. Because <laughs> he doesn't do them separately. Where he is, he is at work. And he's doing Uh, whatever he pleases. Idol worshipers ascribe everything, let's just take weather uh, for an instant, uh, to their gods. And sometimes we speak as if nature were apart from God. There really isn't uh, everything supernatural because it's God made. God sent the snow that we have today out of his treasuries and so uh, we don't want to sound like those who, uh, sophisticated science worshipers who uh, ascribe glory to the God of forces. That's who the Antichrist will ascribe glory to, and so we want to be careful. And you know, like, uh, I got to move on. Um, verse nine. There's a pause to address the enemy of God. We've seen this a couple of times. I haven't mentioned it, but we saw it in just recently in Psalm 120 verse 3 and a couple chapters uh, before in 118. This is an interesting aspect that I don't know if you think about it or do it, I haven't, that speaking to the enemy of God verbally in your uh, communications with God. We won't spend any more time there. I want to look at verse 13 where we see God's name and his memorial set in parallel. The, The I like the word um, reputation for name, because each of us, when our name is mentioned, some people think about your reputation, they think of what you have done, and that, that's uh, what we have here with God. His name is set before us in verse 13, immediately after a description of what he has done, how he uh, smote the firstborn, and how he overthrew nations and so that is uh, what we associate with his names and it's um, the psalm begins and ends with exhortations um, to praise and uh, I like what Plumer says it is obvious that in the work of praise duty and pleasure are beautifully united did we praise more we should be happier and more useful then again, he says, in this work, praise, we should engage heartily and do all we can to excite others to do the same. And then one other brief comment I want to give, because it, is, it was a rebuke uh, to me. And he says, and this is a truth, he said, it is a sad fact. And it is true, at least in my life, it is a sad fact and affords proof of a very fearful alienation from God that inspired men call upon us so often to do this work to which we are criminally indisposed but he doesn't leave us there with our tongues hanging out he goes on and says yet with all their imperfections and I would substitute sins God's people are dear to him so with that praise Yah the hallelujah is how this begins Praise Yahweh's name. Praise Him, you servants of Yahweh. You who stand in Yahweh's house, in the courts of our God's house, praise Yah. For Yahweh is good. Sing praises to His name, for that is pleasant. For Yah has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel for His own possession. For I know that Yahweh is great, that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, That he has done in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. He causes the clouds to rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings with the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. He struck the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and animal. He sent signs and wonders into the middle of you, Egypt, on Pharaoh and on all his servants. He struck many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land for a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Your name, Yahweh, endures forever. Your renown, Yahweh, throughout all generations, for Yahweh will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. House of Israel, praise Yahweh. House of Aaron, praise Yahweh. House of Levi, praise Yahweh. You who fear Yahweh, praise Yahweh. Blessed be Yahweh from Zion who dwells at Jerusalem. Praise Yah.
0: Now before Dan comes to open the word, take your hymn books, Trinity hymn books, turning to 500, 500 in the Trinity. He
1: leadeth me, O blessed thought. Five hundred. It stayed as we say.
0: Well, if you were expecting to see Pastor Charles up here this afternoon, I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> I feel like a, a relief pitcher coming in in the ninth inning here. So um, it's, it's funny on uh, how God's providence works in this regard. Um, I had prepared this uh, message a, a while back in anticipation that should Calvin ever need somebody to stand in him quickly, I would be able to do that. And the Lord said, just hold off, wait, 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 wait. And so it's amazing how the beginning of this message ties into what we read this morning out of Matthew chapter 7. So uh, in God's providence, uh, I'm up here and uh, we'll we'll go along and see how uh, the Holy Spirit leads us. So. psalm 90 verse 2 behold the mountains were born of you brought forth the whole world from everlasting you are God let's bow down and worship this God of creation Lord God we come before you asking that you would grant us a humble spirit a humble heart that Lord you would give us a spirit of repentance that we might seek your face asking for forgiveness of the sins that we've committed against you. Lord God, we stand here individually and as a congregation seeking to do your will. We pray, Lord, that the uh, words of our lips and the actions of our uh, bodies would transmit the love of Christ to others. Lord, we pray that you would abide with us throughout this coming week, direct our paths in the direction we should go. But, Lord, we also ask that you send a spirit of revival upon this land, that people would return to the one true God, that, Lord, uh, your kingdom would be expanded through the power of your spirit. So, Lord, we pray that uh, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. A while back, um, Brother Ken Brown uh, gave a, a message that involved uh, the use of meditation. He talked about meditating upon the Word. And so, as it should, it got me to thinking. And uh, I was reading from the book of Matthew, and here's God's providence I was referring to. I was reading from the book of Matthew, and I came across chapter 7. And something struck me, and I paused to meditate on it. Now, I don't read a lot of poetry, but I do have a few favorite authors. And as I was reading through chapter seven of Matthew, a poem by Robert Frost came to mind. And some of you are probably familiar with his writing, The Road Not Taken. It's about a man following a path into the woods. And when I read this, I think of uh, some of you deer hunters out there going into the woods. I think of it as a fall day with beautiful autumn colors in the trees and and you're able to see your breath as you're walking, and the leaves are coming down and covering the path. And, and when I read the poem, that's what I envision. And this man is walking this path or this road into the woods, and he comes to a fork in the road, and he can, <coughs> he can see it has uh, a choice to, to either stay on the well-traveled road or to take a path that is less traveled. Fewer people have trod that direction. The last stanza of the poem reads like this. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. This, as I was meditating on this uh, verses from chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. When Jesus calls us to come after him, to follow him, he is comparing Christianity to a path or a road that his followers are to walk down. Jesus personally invites us to travel that road with him. It's a spiritual journey. He's not calling us on a physical walk like Robert Frost's stroller here in the woods. What he's asking for is a deeper relationship than simply a stroll down a dusty dirt road. He he instead is inviting us to follow him in our hearts. He calls us to take steps of faith and follow his directions for. The rest of our life. When Jesus says, follow me, he's referring to a spiritual journey and how we live our daily lives. This journey includes our thoughts, our actions, our desires and our motives. Jesus is addressing what is taking place inside our soul, those things that drives and directs every, our every action. We will be looking at one particular event in the life of Christ as he is calling people to follow after him. Now picture, if you will, word has gotten out. Jesus has been healing. He's been preaching. His ministry has spread throughout the region. And it was drawing people to himself. And these people were coming from far and wide just to hear him or to be healed by him. So imagine, if you will, Jesus and his disciples are traveling the countryside, the rolling hills, a slight breeze in the air with the sunshine coming down, and there are huge crowds pressing in around him, trying to hear every word he has to say, and perhaps reaching out in order to touch him for healing or some maybe just traveling along looking for a free lunch of fishes and loaves for the most part this large crowd gave the impression of being his disciples they were walking with him and were very attentive to his words much like today's modern church services If a large number of people were pouring into an enormous sanctuary and there was somebody out on the sidewalk watching people enter, they would probably assume that they were Christians. But just like today, the reality was that large crowds around Jesus were only curious about him. Largely, they were uncommitted and most definitely unconverted. Following Jesus had become the latest fad, if you will, or the in-thing to do. And Jesus was well aware of this. So as the road that he was traveling crested one of these hills with the people behind him, he stops at the top of the hill and he turns around and he speaks to the people below him. However, he did not have words of compassion or words of sympathy to share, but he stro- spoke strong words that made it not easier, but actually made it harder to follow him. So if you will, turn to your Bibles, to Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. Luke 14, 25. We'll be reading through verse 35. I'm going to have to learn to bring my large print Bible. (laughs) Now great multitudes went with him, And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me me cannot be my disciple." For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first, count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, least after he has laid the foundation and it is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, What king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able to, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions for peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Needless to say, I think these are challenging words. And these words were spoken by Jesus toward the end of his ministry. In a matter of months, he will be crucified in the very city that headquarters the religious establishment of Israel. So he thinks that this is no time to sugarcoat the words. This is no time to mince words. This is no time for smooth talk to the crowd. Jesus felt the issues were too great and the time was short. He spoke the words forcefully because of the seriousness of the subject. His important message was intended to wake up the spiritually dead in that crowd. Jesus spoke these difficult words to get the attention of the lethargic and the dull-minded people in that crowd. What Jesus said to them, he's also saying to you and I today. The next few times that I come to speak before you, I'd like to open up this passage a little more. But today I would like to just give an introductory message on this passage in the topic of discipleship. Of course, the Holy Scripture will be the basic source of this teaching, but I will also be sharing some insights from Pastor Stephen Lawson as he writes about this passage in a small book called The Cost*. When Jesus calls us to follow him, to follow him down this narrow path, follow him down this road, the journey begins the very moment we come to faith in Jesus. This journey begins when we commit our lives to him. Faith is much more than just a belief in something. I believe history shows that Jesus Christ lived and died during the Roman Empire. I believe that. But that's not the same as faith. His call to follow him is much more than just giving up a few hours on a Sunday. Profession of faith is easy. Real faith that holds us up in difficult times is another matter altogether. This faith is living your whole life with a Christ-centered view that will honor and glorify him and all the things that we do forever. So there are a few things to keep in mind before you begin your journey down this narrow road. First, there's no amount of good works we could perform that could earn us a place on this path with Jesus. There's no money for us to pay to enter onto this way. It's not a toll road. There's no moral standard we must achieve before we begin. There's no level of holiness you must achieve. All other religions are works-based religions, but not Christianity. There's no ceremonies that you must perform. In other words, there's absolutely nothing we can do to merit starting this journey with Christ that he's called us to perform and do. So we enter this spiritual relationship with him by faith alone. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. So summarize what I just said securing a starting position on this journey cannot be earned by our works instead it's entered into by faith alone in Jesus Christ and his work of redemption on Calvary's cross up to this point we've been traveling down the broad expressway with the rest of the world. And our final destination will be hell and eternal separation from God. We were pushed along at a high rate of speed along with the rest of the world. It was a life in which we did what we wanted, how we wanted, when we wanted to, and with whom we wanted to do it with. This broad superhighway tolerated any manner of life and behavior, any life and manner of behavior that you desired. But when Jesus calls us to confession of our sins and, seek, and we seek repentance, he's willing to forgive. He draws us to the exit ramp and we are no longer uh, going our own way we begin to walk in a new direction. He becomes our guide and we follow him in the narrow way. This narrow way reminds me of entering the city of Petra. (coughs) You may have seen pictures of the city carved into the walls It was a commercial center in the mountains of Jordan. And um, it's an amazing place. But the main entrance to the city was a narrow gap between the walls of the mountains. And at some points it was only wide enough for people to walk single file. There wasn't room for anyone to walk alongside you. No one was able to push or pull you through. You had to keep your eyes on the leader ahead of you. Following Jesus is similar. We no longer go our own way. We no longer follow the flow of the crowd. We begin to walk in a path that is headed in a new direction. We are a changed person, and he is the reason why. We are to love people as he loved people, even the most difficult ones to love, even loving our enemies. We are to act as he acted. We are to meet all of life's many challenges as he did with a supreme confidence in God the Father. Some might ask, okay, I put my faith in Jesus. Now what? When we commit our life to him we receive the immediate forgiveness of our sins and guilt through the death and re- we get our immediate forgiveness of our sins and our guilt through the death and resurrection of Christ the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin is removed from our heavenly accounts all charges that satan lay against us are canceled and marked paid in full. We are then clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. This in turn gives us full acceptance with the holy God of heaven and because he sees us only the righteousness of his perfect son, Jesus, he has adopted us into his family and we become a child of God. Christ comes to live in us, never to leave us. Jesus gives us those who believe in him, the Holy Spirit, who gives us the strength to walk through this sinful world. John 14:16 and 17 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because he neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be with and will be in you. The Spirit is another helper who will advise and guide us as we travel this narrow path. The Spirit will comfort us when we are discouraged, and it will convict us when we go astray. Jesus also gave us his peace. John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you, and peace I give you. I do not give you to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. His peace calms the heart in the midst of life's many difficulties. I can't even imagine facing the chaos surrounding us today without the strength and comfort of Jesus. Jesus gives joy to those who follow him, John fifteen eleven. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. When we're in Christ and we're following with him down this narrow path to salvation, he enables us to live triumphantly in the face of our many worldly challenges. However, he never said these challenges would be easy. He never said they would be easy to overcome, for we will face major difficulties. But he abides with us just the same. He offers us his fellowship as we walk with him daily. We have the privilege of communicating with God the Father directly through prayer and the reading of his word. He provides for all our needs according to his riches and his glory and causes everything to work together for our good if we truly believe and love him. These are just a few of things. They barely scratch the surface of God's love, God's graces, God's promises made and God's promises fulfilled, just barely scratching the surface. In the passage we read from Luke, Jesus tells his followers that following him on this journey also comes at a price. If we are to follow him, we must count the cost. This is not a relationship to be entered into lightly. This decision requires the commitment of our entire life to Jesus Christ. Coming to Christ takes priority over every other interest that we have in this life. Coming to Christ requires the submission of our wills to him as we bow down and acknowledge his lordship. This narrow path in which we are called to follow Christ requires our sacrifice and at times even our suffering for him. And this is a point that Pastor Lawson makes in his book that kind of set me back on my heels he says Jesus will not follow us we are called to follow him don't expect him to come into your worldly life and walk alongside of you he's asking for a complete submission of your life to him not the other way around Following Christ will cost our old ways of life and for forfeiting our past sins. It will cost us life of ease and living for this world. It will cost us old habits and old friends and perhaps even divide our family members. We will have to give up following our own agenda for how we think our lives should be lived. It will cost time and treasure to see the gospel message spread. It may cost you suffering to be identified with him. This path will lead to great opposition and persecution from the world. It may even cost you your life. But, but in the end, we gain far more than we lose. This journey with Jesus leads us to heaven where he himself is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Following Jesus in this life ushers us into his immediate presence in the world to come. It leads us to a place where he's being worshipped by all believers down through the centuries who have put their faith in him. This journey will take you to where untold numbers of angels are continuously praising him. This path with Jesus on it leads us to a far better place than this world. This road takes us directly to the throne of Almighty God. So, as we approach the end of this introductory message, I think this is a good spot to stop and ask you where are you in your spiritual journey? Young or old, or in between, whether you know it or not, you are on a journey. Each minute of life is like taking a step forward. You are either on the broad highway which leads to eternal destruction, or you are on the narrow road that leads to heaven and eternal communion with your Lord and Savior and Creator. There's no other choice, there's no avenue or street or boulevard running between these two paths. It is either the broad road that leads to destruction or the narrow road with Jesus that leads to salvation. Ask yourself, if you trusted your whole life to Christ by faith alone, have you done that? Or are you simply one of those in the crowd that was following Jesus? You were curious, and so you were just tagging along to see what would happen. If you're not already a follower of Jesus, the message that we read from Luke um, is especially for you. Here's how to take the first step in walking uh, this path with your Lord and Savior and King. These words spoken by Jesus are not intended to be just interesting, thought provoking, or intellectually something to ponder. They are meant to stop you in your tracks and to capture your soul. Jesus thought the time was short and the issues were important. So they are today. These words are not just for unbelievers but also hold great meaning for authentic Christians as well. This message should deepen our resolve to follow Christ to run the race, fight the good fight, and finish well. These words are the necessary elements for true spirituality and Christ-like growth. So no matter where you are in life, no matter where you are in your journey, these words by Jesus were intended for you. No greater question will you ever have to answer in your life is, what will I do with Jesus? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you to thank you for your blessed word. And that, Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to move in the hearts of individuals who may be just traveling along this road, curious people, people who do not know you personally. Convict them of their sin, Lord. Teach them they need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work, and that, Lord, you would strengthen your church and add to it those who are being saved. Lord God, we give you all the honor, the glory, and the praise forever and ever. Amen. Let's take the Trinity hymn book and turn to 552, 552. Oh Jesus, I have promised to serve Thee to the end. Be Thou forever near me, my Master and my friend. 552.
1: Let's stand as we sing.